Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew 16, and between Matthew 16 and 18 to the end of the chapter, we have two rip-roaring theological controversies, so we'll get into a little bit of theology this time. The first one is on Peter's, or Jesus' labeling of Peter as the rock of the church, and the other is the coming at the end of the age with his angels. What is it? Is it the Mount of Transfiguration, or is it the end of the world, or is it 87? And we'll start with Matthew 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Jesus says to Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Let's get the context. The first half of chapter 16, we find Jesus and disciples up at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is trying to train his disciples. He's gotten away from the crowds. And Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who, are the, who do the crowds say that I am? And they mentioned several alternatives like Elijah, Jeremiah, prophets, whoever. And Peter says, no, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus really responded to that. And he's building up Peter in response to that answer. And he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Peter means rock in the Greek, it's Petros. Peter is given this name earlier in John chapter 1, verse 42. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw Peter, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means rock. That's Aramaic for rock. The Greek is Petros. So Petros and Cephas mean rock. Now, this was an honor that Jesus, when he called Simon, he apparently prophetically saw into the future. Jesus, the son of God, could do that several times, and did that several times. He knew that Peter was going to do something that would get him a nickname, Rock. And he gave him the nickname in advance. Well, now he is telling Simon that his name is Peter right here. This is kind of the fulfillment of his promise up at Caesarea Philippi. Now, the actual phrase in the Greek is important. It's basically, it goes like this. You are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. You are Petros rock, and upon this Petra rock, I will build my church. The Greek word switches from masculine Petros to feminine Petra. Now, this has engendered all sorts of Catholic-Protestant controversy on this because the Catholics say, see, Peter's the first pope, and Jesus built the, the church on Peter, who was the rock, the first pope. Well, I find it hard to believe that Peter, for one thing, he was married. He's the first pope. I find that really, really hard to believe. The basic Protestant argument to counter that interpretation is that Jesus is saying, look, you are Peter Petros, and Petros is a shifting, movable, small, insecure rock. So you're an, you're an insecure rock, and on this rock, this Petra, which refers to a solid, immovable, large, secure rock, that refers to the confession Peter had just made. Now, there, this is an extremely complicated controversy. And you can, books and books have been written on it, but this is, seems to me to be the standard Protestant interpretation of this, and so that's the one I'm going to take right now. The Petra was the confession that when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that was the rock upon which he would build Jesus' church. The confession of Jesus as Messiah is the foundation, the rock. Now, how, what are some Catholic rejoinders to that Protestant interpretation? One is that Jesus is saying, you are Peter, Petros, a weak rock. And yes, you were weak before Pentecost, but after Peter, Peter Pentecost, you became Petra, a strong rock, baptized in the Holy Spirit, full of power. Some Catholics say that Jesus was actually referring to Peter when he said Petra. So he, when he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this Petra, both Peter and Petros and Petra are both referring to the individual human being Peter, 
But he couldn't call Peter Petra because Petra is feminine and would be demeaning to a man to call him by a feminine noun. So uh, Jesus switched the gender to Petros. And so there's no real distinction between Petros and Petra. They both were referring to the human being Peter and upon that rock. Peter, the church was built and Peter was the first pope. I'll leave that for your, your deeper study. I am a Protestant. I assume that the Protestant interpretation is right. One different argument that John Gill uses in favor of the Protestant position is Jesus could have easily said, Upon you, Peter, I will build my church. But instead he said, Upon this rock I will build this church. Maybe so. Now, does Peter speak for himself or does he speak for the apostles also? Well, the church, of course, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Apostles, plural, as Ephesians 2.20, doesn't ever say it's built on the foundation of one apostle. So that's one problem the Catholic interpretation has. John Gill says this, If it is true, it is true he may be called the foundation as the rest of the twelve apostles of the Lamb are. Ephesians 2.20, the verse I just quoted, without any distinction from them and preference to them. In other words, he's a, he's a foundation if he represents all the apostles. All the apostles are the foundations, and that's the standard Protestant interpretation, too. Now, another argument that Jesus is not referring to Peter alone is when he goes to Matthew 18, two chapters later, and he talks about Peter having the keys of the kingdom and the ability to bind and loose. It's all plural there. The church discipline. Tell it to the church. If it doesn't, the, the sinning person doesn't pay attention to the church, it becomes plural there. So we're going to assume that this confession that Peter made was the confession upon which the rock was built. And this confession is Petra, symbolizes stability and permanence because that's what that Petra kind of rock means in the Greek. Now, what does church mean? He says, on this rock I will build my church. What is church? That's ecclesia. In the gospel, Gospels, the word only appears three times, and that's here in the verse we're just looking at, and also twice in Matthew 18:17, where Matthew says this, If he pays no attention to them, that means the sinning person, tell the church, the ecclesia. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the ecclesia, the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Now, the, that's in the Gospels three times. In the, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, I think it's one time or a couple times, very few times, maybe it's three times, not very often, the Greek word ekklesia is used to translate the assembly of Israel. So it refers to Israel. And, of course, Reformed, Reformed theologians love to talk about that and say, see there, there's a church, Old Testament. I've always found that argument to be so weak it's not even worth dealing with because the word means assembly, and it can refer to any kind of assembly. Israel, it can refer to the church. It doesn't identify Israel and the church as being the same kind of assembly because the Greek word was used in Acts 19.32 as a political assembly. You recall the Gills, the Silversmith Gills got upset with Paul because he was wrecking their idol-making business. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. That's not the church. That's not Israel. It was a political assembly. So we're going to assume that when the term assembly is used in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, but the New Testament, it refers to church. Now, what are the implications for our ecclesiology? Well, assembly meant an assembly of discussing voting believers, just as the Greek assemblies, like at the Pinks and uh, Pinnacks, or however you pronounce that, in, in Greece, when they got together to condemn Socrates and to do all their democratic-type stuff in Athens, which is still there, by the way. It's worth going to see. It's amazing. We, I went there, and there was nobody there. Tourists all over the place. Nobody went to the Pinnacks. But anyway, it's still there. It's an assembly where people assembled and they discussed issues and they voted. And that word was what the, Jesus used for the church and what the apostles used for the church. And the implications of that 
of that may be is just that the church analogously should be an assembly of discussing voting believers, not a bunch of mute sheep sitting on a pew listening to some big shot pastor pope telling them what they're supposed to do. Consensual government, folks. It's an idea whose time has come. The forces of hell, or the forces of Hades, my translation says, will not prevail against it, the church. Now, many, many pastors are now saying that using in different translations, uh, for example, uh, NIV, which has gates, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. They say, well, gates mean are a defensive mechanism and that therefore the church is on offense against hell. And that makes a great preaching point. And as a matter of fact, it's probably true. I know it's true. It's absolutely true. But that's not what the text here is necessarily means. For one thing, the word might be translated forces. If it, if it does, that means it's the power of death will not prevail against the church. Or more particularly, demons will not prevail against the church. That's fine. But let's assume it's gates. If gates is the meaning, and we automatic, do we automatically take that as being defensive? No, because the gates were the place from which... The offensive troops of a city came out, and they charged out. And so Jesus could be saying, all the demons of hell will be charging out of hell, and they're not going to get you, even though the church is on the defensive. So whether the church is on the defensive or on the offensive, I don't think you can prove from this passage. But either way, we're going to win. The devil's going to lose. Hades is going to lose. The church is going to be here forever. Let's go to Matthew 16, verse 19. Jesus is still talking to Peter. He says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you have loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, of course, this is the famous Catholic church. See there, Peter has the keys of the kingdom. He's in charge, and, of course, he passes his authority down through the bishops, down to the pope, and that means Pope Francis, the current day pope in Rome, has authority over the church, which, if that's true, God help us all. He's a lousy pope, in my humble opinion. They need to get a better pope, but... I don't think he can tell the difference between Christianity and the secular humanist culture that polluted Europe. But anyway, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys? There's two options. One is it could refer to the gospel. I'm going to give you, Peter, and all the apostles that you represent, I'm going to give you a key that will allow you to open up the gates of the kingdom of heaven so that people can come in and come into the kingdom. In other words, I'm going to give you the gospel so that you can get people saved. That's the simplest way to look at it. For example, when Peter preached on his Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2, he announced the kingdom was open to Jews and the proselytes. That took care of the Jews. And then he opened up the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house. So keys means the ability to unlock the gospel's meaning for hearers, as according to John Gill says. John Gill's got a great quote here. When the Jews made a man a doctor of the law, they put into his hand the key of the closet in the temple where the sacred books were kept and also tablets to write upon signifying by this that they gave him authority to teach and to explain the scriptures to people. And so that key had symbolism in Jewish culture, and Jesus is talking like a Jew here. You've got the keys. You can unlock those books. You can unlock the sacred books and let people know about the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the first option, the simplest option, that the keys refers to the power to open up the gospel to people. The other option is the power to throw someone into hell or put them into heaven. Of course, now you get into Catholicism. This is absolute nonsense, which is propagated by the Roman Catholic Church. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. Peter is not the doorkeeper of heaven to let in nor keep out whom he pleases, nor has his pretended successor the keys of hell and death. The pretended successor is the current-day pope. These also are only in Christ's hand. 
No pope has got the right to throw you in hell. If you read medieval history, they were constantly putting whole cities under the ban, excommunicating them, and all the people in the cities were scared to death that they were going to hell because the pope had excommunicated them. That is nonsense. Let me read you another good quote from Adam Clark. After all these evidences and proofs of the proper use of the terms, keys and bind, which is basically means to open up the truth, and bind means to determine what is authoritative and non-authoritative in your scriptures. After all that evidence uh, that Clark quotes, he says, to attempt to press the word into the service long assigned them by the Church of Rome, which, to use the words of Dr. Lightfoot, be, quote, a matter of laughter or of madness, unquote. In other words, the Catholic position will either drive you crazy or make you laugh. It's absurd. No church can use the keys in the sense thus imposed upon them, which was done merely to serve secular ends, and least of all can that very church use them that abuses them. All right, well, enough of my anti-Catholic propaganda. The you here that says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, that's Peter, and so people tend to think, oh, see there, he's the, the, it's Peter that the church is built on. Well, actually, though, you go to the binding and loosing. See, here it says you can bind and loose in Matthew 16, 19. But when you get to Matthew 18, it's the church, which is plural, that does the binding and loosing. In fact, the you in Matthew 18, 18 is plural. So from that, we can deduce that Jesus is singling out Peter as representative of the whole church, which has the power to bind loose. Now we need to look at the word already. Whatever you bind on earth. Actually, we haven't talked about bind yet. Let's talk about bind first. Here's some options, and I'm going to give you four options. They're all very close in meaning, so I'm not sure it's worth splitting them out, but I will. First option from John Gill. To bind means to decide what's sinful, uh, what's lawful, and what's not sinful or lawful, what doctrine is true or what is not. Let me give you a quote from Gill. In which sense the words bound and loosed are used in the Talmudic writings, times without number, for that which is forbidden and declared to be unlawful, and for that which is free of use, and pronounced to be so. In multitudes of places we read of one rabbi binding and of another loosing. Thousands and ten thousands of instances of this kind might be produced. A whole volume of extracts on this head might be compiled. That's a pretty strong case. So, the binding and loosing is rabbis deciding what's right and what's wrong, doctrine or practice or whatever. Now, the early apostles actually did this, as John Gill points out. They determined the controversy about legalism in Acts 15. And the apostles, plus the rest of the church that were with the apostles, they forbade observance of Jewish holidays and observances in Galatians 4. 9, they said that Gentiles were equal to Jews, as, for example, in Cornelius' house. So the apostles were making decisions that affected all of salvation history for the next 2,000 years. As Adam Clark said, this was necessary because the Old Testament law was abolished for the believers. So we get the law of Christ is Jesus' commands and what his apostles said, and that's what governs the church. That's what binds and looses the church. So when Peter, representing the apostles, binds and looses the church, that just means the apostles direct the church in decisions and in doctrine. Second option is what bind means, whether a man is sinful or not. Well, that's somewhat similar to what I just said, the authority to decide what's right or wrong. That's close to deciding what's, if, if a man is sinful or not. Third option, authority to announce things determined by God. This is my inner study Bible. We read in Matthew 18, 17, 18, famous church discipline passage, if he, the sinning brother, pays no attention to them, the witnesses that have been brought forward to him, Tell the church, the whole church, but if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. 
I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. There's that same language. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, notice that the authority to bind things has been already granted by God because it says, whatever you bound on earth is already bound in heaven. This is in Matthew 18. We have the same language in Matthew 16 where we are now. The binding and loosing is binding and loosing of something that is already bound and loosed in heaven. It's just merely pronouncing, announcing things that have previously been determined by God, which is option number three here on what binding means, as the NIV Study Bible proposes. And notice it's the church, not Peter that binds, or Peter's successors, the popes that binds. It's the church. This binding does not mean that Peter's or the apostles' authority uh, existed so that they could determine things themselves. According to my NIV study Bible, the authority was soon expressly extended to all the apostles, says Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, so that the claim of supreme authority in the church made for Peter by the Church of Rome and then arrogated to themselves by the popes as the legitimate successors of St. Peter is baseless and impudent. Well, I would say that papacy is baseless and impudent. I don't have any problems with that because it's nonsense. All right, fourth option as to what binding means. The authority to decide admission to and rejection from membership of the church. And, of course, that comes from Matthew 18, where the phrase binding and loosing is referred to church discipline. The context, therefore, makes me think this is what it means. We'll get the, the context of Matthew 18. But either way, what it means is, basically, you as ecclesiastical authorities have the right to decide what's right, what's wrong, who stays, who goes, and so forth. In other words... You, Peter, and the apostles whom you represent are going to be the authorities in the church. Jesus is setting up his kingdom. We go now to verse 20 in Matthew 16. Well, first of all, the kingdom of heaven, let me mention this. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Excuse me, I want to quote this part. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is referring to the church that's on earth. Remember, the kingdom of heaven can also extend to the angels and departed saints in, in heaven. But he's ta we're talking about on earth to govern the church on earth. Matthew 16, verse 20. And he gave the orders, the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now, they obviously believed he was the Messiah because Peter and probably the rest of the apostles following Peter confessed, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, why did Jesus want Peter to tell no one? Because the people had false notions about the Messiah. They needed to be taught further. They were thinking, well, is he is the Messiah? Jesus, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, who is he? And then, of course, when they think Messiah, they're thinking about a political Messiah that's going to deliver them from the yoke of the Romans. Maybe we need to start a revolution. All right, so that was one reason why he had to t say, tell no one, that he didn't want a premature revolution set up. He had to do further training to, of the people as to what the suffering servant Messiah was going to be like. A Messiah was going to be killed on the cross. Another reason he might have told no one to tell anybody, uh, he, that he might have told the disciples to tell no one, is because he had a strict schedule to keep. According to the NIV Study Bible, he couldn't be interrupted by premature reactions. He didn't want his teaching ministry to be hindered by crowds excited by miracles. And he wanted to proceed orderly without the chaos that came from all those crowds. But the probable reason, in my opinion, and according to the NIV Study Bible, is that he did not want to be killed prematurely. The Jewish authorities would naturally see such a popular teacher as a threat. His preparation time for the disciples would be cut short if he was killed before his time. And besides, right now, at this time when Jesus was so explicit, when he basically said, Blessed are you because flesh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Simon, your confession that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. 
Jesus was so explicit about his Messiahship here at Caesarea Philippi that it would be normal for his disciples to start talking up Messiahships. Time to set the kingdom up, and Jesus has got to tamp down their expectations. Now, this was a common thing he did all through the scriptures. At the same time, I'm going to read them without giving you the context of them, but just just listen to the, the fact how Jesus is telling everybody to shut up about his Messiahship. Matthew 9:30, and their eyes were opened that Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Matthew 12:16, he warned them not to make him known. Mark 1:44, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Mark 5:43, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and that she gave them something to eat. Mark 7:36. Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. Luke 8:56. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So Jesus had a long-running battle to keep his troops in restraint. Matthew 16, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Now, can you imagine if you're the disciple? You've just been told that you, you've seen all these incredible miracles. Peter's just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, and everybody's thinking Messiahship, Messiahship, kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells you, oh, by the way, I'm going to get killed. And, and oh, by the way, be raised up the third day. Of course, they have no idea what resurrection means. This is a mind-blowing teaching that they're getting right here. Let's take care of some details here. The elders, priests, chief priests, and the scribes are going to persecute Jesus and kill him and cause him to be to suffer many things. The elders were the political leaders, like at the Sanhedrin. The chief priests were those who were appointed for temple to handle the temple service, and the scribes were the private parties who were the gatekeepers of the law, who and also a professional class that copied scripture, wrote letters, and they were notaries, kind of. And, of course, there were some, many of the scribes were Pharisees who hated Jesus. So the elders, chief priests, and scribes kind of cuts every demographic slice of Israel. They all hated him, and they were going to kill Jesus. Adam Clark divides the, the people, the opponents of Jesus up this way. The elders were rich men. The chief priests were ambitious ecclesiastics. And the scribes were conceited scholars. Now, Jesus here explicitly says he's going to be raised the third day. Now, he had mentioned this earlier, but he had been obscure. For example, four chapters earlier in Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus told the Pharisees who were asking for a sign, he said, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What does that mean? It implies that if you're in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, that after that time period is over, you're going to come out of the heart of the earth. So he had implied that he would be raised again, but now he's telling the disciples, not the Pharisees, but the disciples, that he's going to be raised per day. Another little prophetic. This shows that Jesus wasn't completely unaware of his future. And notice that even though he knew the future was going to be glorious, he still sweated blood when he had to think about what he had to go through to get to the future. I think this is a human nature type of thing that we too, we know that Jesus is going to deliver us, but by golly, things look so hard sometimes in order to get there. What's it going to be like? So instead of a glorious, victorious political Messiah, the disciples here are confronted with a suffering servant, servant Messiah. Jesus tells them, I must suffer many things in verse 21. Well, that was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. His countenance will be bruised so much that no man would recognize him. He bore in his body our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. And those famous passages in Isaiah, the apostles apparently had forgotten about that. 
Jesus reminds them, and, and this I'm going to give you a, five scriptures here in Mark where Jesus taught his disciples that he was going to suffer. Mark 9:12. Elijah does come first and restores everything. He replied, this is somebody saying to Jesus about Elijah coming first, and maybe Jesus is Elijah and restoring everything means we're going to have a political kingdom here that's going to be in charge and not the Romans. Elijah does come first and restores everything. Jesus replied, how then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt, written as, for example, in Isaiah 52 and 53. Mark 9:31. for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Mark 10, verse 33 through 34. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three. So there you have an explicit statement to the disciples who never did really understand this Mark, until after the, re- after the resurrection. Mark 14, 21. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Mark 14, 41. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? This is at Gethsemane. Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to suffer. And it was real hard for the apostles to handle that. And you can understand that after what they had seen. Peter had walked on the water. They had seen lepers cured messianic miracles. They had seen blind men see, deaf and dumb men talk. 4,000 men and then women and children plus women and children. 5,000 men plus women and children fed in the wilderness with no food, creative miracles. They had seen all of this and they were getting all excited about it. And then Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. That's pretty rough. Well, Peter took it hard. Matthew 16, verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now, rebuking Jesus, now rebuking the Son of God, you know, the Messiah, that's kind of rough, kind of hard to do. But you can understand what Peter thought. He didn't want Jesus to die. He couldn't imagine that such a thing would happen to the Messiah after all the things he had seen. He knew Jesus could stop his execution. If he could stop the storm on the sea that Peter was walking on, about to die in, if he could stop that storm, he could stop his execution, call down thousands of angels from heaven and wipe out the Romans and the Jews who were trying to kill him. He's showing his impetuosity here. He, of course, is famous for that. But he loved the Lord so much. He says, no, 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 this will never happen to you. He didn't do it out of ill will. He didn't try. He wasn't trying to say that Jesus was wrong. He wasn't trying to say, you're a false prophet. No, he was just emotionally horror struck at what Jesus said was going to happen to him. Now, why he took Jesus aside and did that, I don't know why he did that. He wouldn't say that in front of the other apostles. Maybe he he didn't want to appear to make Jesus lose face in front of the other disciples. I don't know, but he took him aside. And he might, how you can rebuke the Messiah. Remember, Peter had just gotten a lot of honor put on him. Upon this rock, I will build my church. You can, you got the keys to the kingdom. You can bind and loose. And so, you know, he's thinking, you know, somebody like that's got the right to talk to the Messiah. So he was impetuous. He had just been given a lot of honor, and he was emotionally horror-struck at the thought of Jesus dying. All those reasons impelled him to go talk to Jesus about this thing. Peter never quite got it into his head that Jesus had to die. We read on Good Friday night, John 18:10, that Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. This is when the temple guard was sent by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was going to put a stop to that and cut off the high priest's slave's ear. 
Of course, Jesus healed the ear and said, forget it. You live by the sword, you die by the sword, Peter. So Peter just couldn't, just couldn't face the fact that the Jesus he loved was going to die. Matthew 16, verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to, because you're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. Now, I don't know about you, but this just seems sort of strong to me. Jesus, how can you say that to Peter? He's just trying to save your life. But Jesus always looked at things from the spiritual point of view. If Jesus' life was saved, that means the rest of the world's lives would be lost. We'd all be condemned, condemned to hell. You're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. He was, Peter was thinking about his concerns. He wanted Jesus to still be alive. Now, it could be he had some desires to be set up in the Messianic kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus was talking about, and Peter was going to be have the, the keys to the kingdom the keys to that kingdom he was going to be a big shot and now jesus is saying you're going to die i'm going to die and where does that leave me peter now i don't know how selfish peter was i don't know the word satan that peter called that jesus called peter it means adversary or accuser notice how that peter the rock had very quickly turned into peter the devil didn't take long now what did jesus mean when he called peter satan here's some options he could have just meant that peter was an adversary because that's what satan means Adam Clark accepts this explanation. This would abate the harshness of the expression, get behind me, my adversary. Or he could be referring to the carnality of Peter's nature. The Jews would often say of a bad man, this is Satan, not meaning literally that the bad man was a Satan, but that he was doing bad things such as Satan might influence one to do. Or it could be he was likening option number three, Jesus was actually likening Peter to Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. You're you're the devil. I don't. Either way, it was a pretty strong rebuke. It's a pretty emotional scene here in the wilderness. It's something worth remembering. Matthew. Oh, by the way, a little detail from Mark, our detail man. Jesus told Peter in the presence of all the rest, "Get behind me, Satan." In other words, he didn't tell it to Peter privately. He said it publicly, or at least I should say publicly. He said it to all the other disciples. Mark 8:33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. John Gill said that, I mentioned this, but John Gill says also that Peter was probably thinking of the worldly glory the traditional Jewish Messiah would have. And he would get to share in that glory. So maybe there was more than just a concern for Jesus' life that was involved here. Maybe there was some selfishness mixed with the motives. And who knows, maybe Peter did, he couldn't even examine his motives under the pressure the emotional pressure of the moment. Then Jesus says in verse 24, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a famous verse, but the context is so good because he just had told his apostles that he was going to die. And so he says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. If you want to be my disciple, you got to follow me to Jerusalem and die too. Because when a criminal took up his cross, that means he, he took up the cross piece. The, the Romans would make criminals carry their own cross piece to the crucifixion site. This is a matter of degradation and humiliation. So this was a, a metaphor that meant dying. You've got to die, literally die. And of course, all but one of the apostles did die. They were departed. This they shuffled off this mortal coil a little bit prematurely, except for John. The rest of them were were murdered because they followed Jesus. So that verse is often, of course applied to Christians, you've got to deny your selfish desires, your ambitions, your wants, your dreams, and all that, and follow Jesus and not what you want, which is a perfectly good application. But it's applied so much that we often forget the original meaning of it, which is literally 
Jesus was telling his disciples, you want to follow me? You... Now, this is what's so amazing about Christianity. Jesus had such incredibly high standards for his followers, and yet people still followed him. They loved him so much. And that's why this watered-down Andy Stanley, Joel Osteen nonsense about Jesus is going to make you rich and make you happy and make you self-adjusted, and we can't say anything about hell because it might offend you, is absolute absolutely offensive because Jesus didn't talk to his disciples that way. He said, you want to follow me? You're going to have to die. Matthew verse chapter 10, which is six chapters earlier. I think this is, yeah, this is when Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles on their first journey, which, and they were facing danger then too. Jesus says, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. He's talking about people dying, even before his final and fatal trip to Jerusalem, he was talking about the disciples might lose their lives just as they went around evangelizing. And by the way, he said to his disciples here in Matthew, but in Mark, it says he also said to the people, summoning the crowd, Mark 8, verse 34, summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus gave the bad news to everybody, not just the disciples. You want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to die. When he said, follow me, he meant follow me to my crucifixion. That's what he meant. You know, it's a lot easier to follow Jesus now because uh, he's risen from the dead. But think about following him before he was crucified. Matthew 16, verses 25 through 26. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? Now, the the word life here is ambiguous, or there's equivocation on it. The first life, he's talking about saving a life, that's your physical life. Then talking about losing your life, that's your spiritual life. So he, he alternates between the physical and the spiritual. So if you want to save your physical life, you're going to lose your f- physical life. You're going to die anyway. But whoever loses his physical life because of me, but but whoever loses his spiritual life because of me will find it. In other words, if you'll give up on all your vain emotions and and desires and so forth, you give that up, you're going to find your your emotional life, your spiritual life. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Again, that's talking about your spiritual life. Or what will a man give in exchange for his spiritual life? You're going to lose your life because you're going to hell. Let me give you a good, I know, post-millennial People don't like to hear things about hell. But let's see what John Gill, who lived in a more enlightened age, he says this, If that should be consigned to everlasting torment and misery, be banished the divine present, and continually feel the gnawings of the worm of conscience that never dies, and the fierceness of the fire of God's wrath that shall never be quenched, he will have a miserable bargain of it. Yeah, really, bad deal. All right, well, Jesus is going to finish off his prophecies of gloom and doom with some more positive assertions. Now, he did say, as he was saying through this, I'm going to be raised up on the third day. I'm not sure how much the apostles heard him say that, so it wasn't all doom and gloom, but it was mainly uh, he's going to get killed, he's going to get killed. But now in verses 27 and 28, we read this. Jesus is still talking. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now this is to reassure the disciples. You will get rewarded for what you've done. If you follow Jesus all the way to your crucifixion and your death, you're going to get rewarded. And some of you here are not going to taste death. And you're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In other words... This is some good comfort for you. Now, unfortunately, 
if people say this is uh, coming in his kingdom at the end of the world 2,000 plus years later, that's not going to be any comfort to the disciples, not any comfort at all. What he's referring to is the coming in judgment on, on Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, we're going to have to prove that. This assertion that, it, that the coming in his kingdom refers to AD 70 is accepted by John Gill and accepted by Adam Clark. They, of course, wrote before the rise of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has screwed up almost all interpretations of the kingdom of God, unfortunately. The context fits coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 because Jesus was talking to his disciples about the possibility of losing a disciple's life. But he says, but some of you are not going to die. He's referring to their experience, not the experience of a generation 2,000 plus years later. Adam Clark says this, It must appear very clearly that the whole passage speaks not of a future judgment, but of the destruction of the Jewish polity and the glorious spread of Christianity in the earth. Here, here. John Gill rejects the interpretation that says that the Son of Man coming in his kingdom here refers to the last day of history. The reason being is because... Jesus said that some of you will not taste death until Jesus comes. Well, if Jesus comes 2,000 plus years at the end of time, if that's the coming he's referring to here, everybody listening to his words would have tasted death by then. So it can't be the end of time. It's impossible. Unless Jesus made a wrong prediction. Of course, you can, the Son of Man making a mistake, I don't think so. There's another option. It could be the Day of Transfiguration. This is what a lot of people adopt, the position they adopt to get around this problem that I just told you that of the tasting of death. Well, sure, some people are not going to taste death when the Son of Man comes in his kingdom at the Mount of Transfiguration, which happened, according to my NIV study Bible, about one week later. But that doesn't work either. That's too soon. What's the big deal? Hey, some of you are not going to die in one week. Why would anybody say that? What's the big deal? Of course they're not going to die in one week. But if you say it's the coming in his kingdom, it refers to Eighty, seventy. that's about 40 years later. Well, some would die and some would not die. That, that time frame fits that prediction perfectly. Some of you will not taste death until eighty seventy, which is actually true. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, he was thrown off the temple in the 40s, so he did taste death. John the Apostle, John the, his brother, John, the son of Zebedee, the author of the book of Revelation, he lasted till after eighty seventy, And so... It just fits perfectly. So this is what he's talking about. Now, some people might complain about the angels. Well, angels, Jesus is coming in his kingdom to wipe out the Jewish order to establish his church. That was a coming that was not visible to the eye. And likewise, the angels that are with him are not visible to the eye. That doesn't bother me one bit. There's going to be, it's going to be a glorious thing. To watch that city burn was a glorious thing, the glory of his father. This, of course, is ref this whole passage about angels coming in glory is referring to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man, that's Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, in Daniel, he's coming up to heaven, not coming down. Jesus reversed the order. He, Jesus, approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule in glory in a kingdom. There's the glory. He's going to come with glory. He went up to heaven to receive glory, then he came back to destroy the Jews, the Jewish kingdom that had killed him, and he had glory doing that. He was given authority to rule and glory in the kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. 
Adam Clark says that the kingdom Daniel is predicting here is the beginning of the church, which is to be inaugurated by the destruction of the Jews. Quote, Adam, Adam Clark says this, quote, This was the glorious mediatorial kingdom which Jesus Christ was now about to set up by the destruction of the Jewish nation and polity and the diffusion of his gospel through the whole world. Pretty good Orthodox Protestant interpretation of this verse, I think, of this prediction of the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. Some people, by the way, looking at the word angels, he will come with his angels, and I don't believe this, but some people say that he's coming with his messengers, because angels can be translated as messengers, and the messengers referred to the preachers of the gospel who went out and preached after the 70. In Matthew 24, you can see that angels are involved in the judgment of Jerusalem. I don't... Now there, it talks about the gospel going out. Messengers were sent out all over the world uh, in, in the Olivet Discourse, and so I do believe it could refer to angels there in the Olivet Discourse, messengers of the gospel. But uh, I don't. it doesn't sound like that to me here. Come with his angels and the glory of his Father. That sounds like real angels. Not necessarily that you could see, but going on a mission of destruction to wipe out Jerusalem. Before we leave this first, I need to point out that some people have a fourth option, that the coming in the kingdom referred to Jesus coming at Pentecost and by way of the Holy Spirit to fill the, Holy, to fill the disciples with the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is it's too close, too. That was about a year later. Some of you will not be standing here a year later. That's too close. That's the same problem with referring it to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's too close. It doesn't mean anything. Forty years away, which was the coming of Jesus to destroy Jerusalem in AD 70, that makes sense because then some of you will not be standing. Some of you will be standing. Some of you will taste death and some of you will not taste death. That fits Jesus' prediction precisely. Ladies and gentlemen, we thus end chapter 16. We're at Caesarea Philippi. The disciples are being prepared to go to Jerusalem. We'll take up the story next chapter. Hope you enjoyed this audio.